0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and thank you for listening to all our previous podcasts. This is a first for the investor and investor, as I'd like to introduce a two part podcast with Andy Phillips. We're benefiting from hearing a fantastic and interesting entrepreneurial journey in part one, followed by an insightful look into how Andy transitioned into angel investing in part two. We hope you enjoy. welcome again to another invested investor podcast. This time I've got an angel I've co-invested with who has had a very interesting entrepreneurial journey, Andy Phillips, who I've known for about six or seven years, has become a friend. So Andy, tell us a bit about your background.
1: Thank you very much, Peter. I started at uh, Cambridge, so I had an undergraduate degree in natural sciences at Cambridge, and then moved on to do a PhD in Cambridge in natural sciences again, so in materials science. The grand title of Mixed Mode Interfacial Fracture of Biomimetic Ceramic Laminates there, which um, wasn't a good way to meet people at university. I then went on to work in industrial research. I worked for a company called Cookson Group, followed by some time at BOC Group. And then at the end of that, I was basically trying to imagine what I wanted to do next. I had a kind of career crisis and realized that I really wanted to understand how businesses fitted together with a slightly critical eye on the departments I was working in. You always look at businesses and think, why is it done this way? I'm sure it could be done better, et cetera, et cetera. And with that in mind, went off to INSEAD in 98, 99 to do an MBA. And then when I came out of MBA, I set up my own business. And the original business I was looking at doing was actually, I was trying to buy an olive business with a friend, which was those very expensive spiced olives you can get in the delis. The gross margin on those can be quite attractive. And so I was looking at buying a business down in the south of France. And my co-founder, Adrian Critchlow, who's also my cousin, rang me up and said, you are right in the middle of the biggest thing to hit business in the last 40 years, and you are buying an olive business. Yeah. And so we looked at setting up an internet business, and we focused on the travel sector. So I ran that business with Adrian through till 2004, 2005. as a business called Active Hotels when we, we sold it. And then I bought into a company called Top Table, along with Karen Hanton, and we grew that into being a significant player in the European market for online restaurant reservations.
0: Yes. Okay. Let's go back to Active Hotels because that's your first entrepreneurial journey. I mean, Top Ten we'll come back to later on. That was a combination of investor and uh, director. Active Hotels. You had their idea. Why did you pick hotels? Because you just felt like almost anything at that point in the late nineties was going to grow, I guess, on the internet. Yes, it was
1: quite calculating in retrospect. We were looking at what industries were expected to be impacted by the internet, and you know there were many, many industries being impacted but the biggest one at the time was probably travel and then we looked through travel and where people have traditionally or historically made margin in the travel industry is in insurance and in hotels and we knew very little about either actually but we decided to pick on hotels so we we set up an internet hotel booking business but with a ridiculous in retrospect amount of research so I was quite conservative and we did 760 hotel interviews to try and work out exactly what the proposition was we really wanted to make Sure, we understood very well what hotels needed, what the problems were, what the challenges were. And, you know, I would argue now 760 was ridiculous. And these were face-to-face or on the telephone? We probably did about 150 face-to-face. And we also hired a call centre to
0: do interviews Mm. for the remaining. And so that's one side of the platform. You're a specialist in platforms. What about the other side? Did you use your own knowledge, your friend's knowledge? I mean, you need to also attract customers. Yes, we spent less time on that. and Probably we should have spent more time on it.
1: If I illustrate why we spent less time, the research sort of indicated that slightly. If you spoke to hotels at the time, everyone knew that the internet was going to or was expected to be a massive impact on the travel industry. But there were some quite big brands already launched then. So lastminute.com, hotels.com, Expedia, those kind of people with many, many millions behind them. But when you spoke to hotels, there was a big problem. If you're going to sell through multiple different channels, you have to make sure your availability and your prices are aligned. Otherwise, you can double sell the room or you can sell it at the wrong price. And if you're having to update your availability across all these different platforms at once, it gives you a real technical challenge. So we actually set up as a kind of hub model where we had a central database where you would maintain your availability and pricing once, you would add your room descriptions, et cetera, and then we distributed it out to whoever might want it. But as a result, we did have interest in what the consumers wanted. When we started at least, we were b 2 b to c if you like. So we spent a bit more time talking to websites than we did speaking directly to consumers. That changed as the business progressed. How did you fund those initial weeks and months? Painfully, actually. So we managed to persuade an awful lot of friends to come and do stuff for free. I put some more money in. It was quite difficult putting more money at the time because I'd just funded an MBA. So we were struggling a bit for cash, but we managed to persuade some people to write the code. We managed to persuade some people to do some marketing for free. And we actually started bluffing things. like We actually hired the premises, et cetera, while we were doing the funding round. But there was quite a lot of pressure to actually close the funding round by the time we actually did it. So there was an air of desperation, certainly when I was pitching.
0: And how much did you raise in that first round?
1: £405,000, which I know is a rather peculiar amount of money, but the five was because we met one guy who wanted to invest five, and he was a really nice guy, so we let him. But who do you pitch to? As with many entrepreneurs, we wanted useful money, and we were very specific about what skill sets we want. And then as you gradually get more and more desperate, you want any money. So we got some brilliant investors we had the chairman of APTA, the Association of British Travel Agents. We had a very successful technology, entrepreneurs. There, We had some very good marketing people, marketing directors for Pepsi, for example, invested in us. And then as we got slightly more in need of money, and also because of the personal chemistry, we took money from Britain's largest potato farmer, for example, and the BBC correspondent, for Iran, and, um, <laughs> which are difficult to justify
0: operationally, but actually they were nice people. So these are all angels at this point. There wasn't yeah. any funding there. So, no. so, so that was the first 405. When was the next round? Next round was through in October
1: 2000, so about 10 months out, which was much earlier than we expected. And it was basically because when we launched the business, the original concept when we spoke to hotels was they didn't understand how to get on the internet. I know it sounds ridiculous in retrospect. And we're very nervous about having internet connection because they thought their staff might surf off around other websites. So we did a deal with Alcatel to provide a thin client that when you switched it on, it came up with our page. All you could do was add in the availability and check your bookings. And we launched that, we managed to sign up 500 hotels quite fast, and we did a distribution deal with a U.S. company called WorldRes, which was powering, and again, this dates me, the largest travel website in the world at that point was Yahoo Travel, and they were powering Yahoo Travel in the U.S. So one of the challenges when you're starting to set up a marketplace is if you haven't yet got any distribution, Then why would any hotel work with you? And if you haven't yet got any hotels, why would any distribution partner work with you? So by doing the deal with WorldRes, it enabled us to get some marketing benefits, at least with hotels. So we got 500 hotels up and running. We were expecting to be delivering two, three bookings per hotel per month. And when we actually launched, we are delivering 0.4 bookings per day. And that was Total, that wasn't per hotel, that was yeah. per day. <laughs> so if we had a gross margin of about three pounds a day and a, <laughs> and a cost base of about 25 grand a month. So we were away off
0: break even, I think, as a polite way of putting it. Okay, so you decided <laughs> you were to go out for some old funding, but we didn't have much choice. <laughs> no, 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 so you actually went back to your angels and they came up with some cash, I, I guess, between them, but that wouldn't be enough. You needed to go out to some fund at that point of view. We went out to funds, but to be honest, the traction we'd had was so appalling that it was very, very hard to
1: justify it. This was also in October 2000 or September, October 2000. And in case you've forgotten, the crash in the dot com market happened in sort of February 2000. So it wasn't a great time to be going back for money. And one of the reasons I'm so enthusiastic about Angels actually is, is the Angels slightly irrationally backed us because our revenue model was very, very far from proven. To put it in context, we'd signed up 500 hotels, which was probably more than Hotels.com had at the time. So we got some inventory, but we hadn't gone anywhere near to proving the demand model. And the angels did it out of a combination of hope and trust in us. And naively, I didn't realize that most angels, when they put money in, don't really expect you to hit the plan. I was deeply disappointing and apologetic and groveling, and possibly on the back of groveling so much,
0: they put some more money in, which was, the business would have gone bust without it. Excellent. And how much did they put in that time? 500,000. So that was another 20 or so months of 25K per month. But you then ramped up costs, I guess. And so costs gradually went up, and I wasn't paying myself anything in the
1: first year. And Adrian, my co-founder, wasn't either, and that meant i now had 24 months without salary, and I was beginning to get quite desperate at that point, slightly absurdly. So I was walking down the aisles of the supermarket, checking out the cheapest brand of pasta, and it just got absurd. And so I went, went back to my best and said, I'm sorry, I need to pay myself something. And they all went, oh, sorry, we didn't realise you weren't already paying so which was slightly frustrating. I could have taken a salary much earlier. but
0: <laughs> <laughs> We'll come back to how the board was constituted in a few minutes, but just let's carry on the journey of investment. So you've raised the 500. How quickly was that spent? And, and when did you decide you need to raise some more?
1: Once we began to work out the dynamics of the marketplace, we realized we needed to go reasonably fast, that there's a natural dynamic in the marketplace that once you've got every supplier on your market, then every demand partner wants to come to you. So there's a natural barrier to entry, but it does rely on scale. So we wanted to raise significant money. It was a very difficult time to raise money because the stock market was plummeting. And we also, again, thinking back, we had the Gulf War, we had SARS, we had Foot and Mouth. And 9-11 in there. And we had 9-11. So we went back and our next funding round actually was supposed to close on September the 12th, 2001. And that was from a group of VCs. And that was incredibly difficult. And I I remember very distinctly having to give a presentation to Close Brothers on September the 12th, 2001, of what the impact of September the 11th was going to be on the travel industry, which was obviously not particularly well-researched. And it could also predict the answer that I was going to give was, you know, have no impact whatsoever, don't worry. Yeah. But to their credit, they did invest. It took a bit longer, uh, to uh, they did invest. And I think they invested slightly less than they were going to. So we took another million at that point and then followed in about six months' time with 1.6 million. So in total, I think
0: we raised 3.7 from memory. In the period of about two and a half to three years. So quite yep. a short time, really. Yes. And that was your last funding round. So that would be in 02, your last funding round. I think it was it? 01 towards the end. Really? Of the end. And you exited know 04, didn't you? Yeah. And your growth was stellar. You mentioned earlier on that a 43X in two years, was it? You were growing 43 times revenue?
1: Yes. Yeah. And you can read two things. We were growing very fast. You can also read that we were very small at the beginning of that growth. So (laughs) The denominator was quite small. But yes, we did grow very fast. And I think when we sold, we were still growing a couple of hundred percent per annum.
0: And you were profitable.
1: Yes, which I didn't realize was so unfashionable at the time. We had some brilliant non-execs on the board who could see through the hype at the time and said, ignore it focus on what makes a good business make sure the underlying unit economics work really well you don't build in excessive costs into the business and you set up for scale and it's really really good advice it's hard when someone is throwing millions upon millions at a competitor to maintain those business dynamics but actually because the industry was collapsing at that time the vc industry was collapsing you know very very few people wanted to invest at in that time period it kind of helped that we had good operational advice on how to grow a business from cash flow and as a result, as you say, we, we got profitable quite quickly. I think it was in 2002,
0: we were profitable. Just three years into it, the journey. Yeah. Yes. But looking at the accounts, it doesn't appear you reused much of that profit. You were still profitable on top of the profit you reinvested in growth, weren't you? Yes. And in retrospect, I think we should have invested more. Yeah. But
1: the challenge, and this is a reflection on my inadequacy as a GVX, if you're growing a couple of hundred percent per annum, to launch new initiatives alongside that requires a lot of bandwidth. Mm. So I was always nervous that, and one of the big things I've been taught from my non-execs and also INSEAD was focus on doing one or two things really, really well. So we focused all our resources on that. And actually, many of the other activities, like we should probably have expanded more aggressively geographically. For example, we did very well in France, but we were number two in Spain and Italy. And maybe if we'd invested more time and more money in that. And I think other areas that I probably would have done better, I probably invested more in technical infrastructure. We built up technical debt with time. And I wish I could say I do that better now. But unfortunately, I still look at my businesses and you still
0: build up technical debt and you always have a challenge on how to get rid of that. That's prioritization and cash availability, isn't it? And market pull as well. push. Let's talk about people now. So we're going to talk about the non-exec board and the investors that came on and helped you. But let's talk about the staff. How was the growth, say, year by year, if you can remember, in terms of team size? We were probably 15 or so in the first year,
1: somewhere around that, and we were very cheap. At the time, I hired... Everyone pretty much from an engineering background. And by engineer now comes has come to mean software, but actually at the time it was heavy engineering. And they were fantastic because, largely speaking, heavy engineering has been undervalued by the UK economy and they were very cheap. So I could pay them not very much and they still got a pay rise coming from where they were. Where were you based, in Cambridge? I was based in Cambridge, but I hired my old boss, actually a guy called Matthew Witt, who is brilliant and you really held the business together. So he, he came in as chief operating officer and he'd managed... You know, manufacturing plants with thousands of orders per month and you know, a couple of thousand people. I had all the experience, expertise to prioritize, make sure the team is coordinated, make sure the management reporting grows, et cetera. Yeah, you know, he, was, he was a godsend to me. And then balanced with that, my co-founder, who, who was brilliant on coming up with the innovation, the ideas, et cetera. It's, the trouble is when I talk about this, I try and wonder what I did, actually, but <laughs> <laughs> You
0: held
1: it all together,
0: That's exactly. you sold equity,
1: <laughs> you had the vision. <laughs> And then um, we, got, we got a very good sales guy uh, uh, called Dan Smith and a, and a very good marketeer called um, Rebecca Lilly at the time, since married. So alongside Serene Philado, who helped us expand into France. Yeah, so we were very, very fortunate to get very good people and relatively cheaply at the time. And how many people was it when you exited? About 130, probably around there. And clutching That's, that's strong
0: growth because it, four or five years, that's 20, 25 a year you were growing, which is one every second week. Yes. And actually, one of the challenges or one of the big shifts, having gone bust
1: twice, probably, arguably. Not really. Well, probably. (laughs) There were some challenging moments, at least put it that way. And your culture is very much on conserving cash and making sure that you're not spending needless overhead. And actually, coming back to your previous point, as soon as you become profitable, we are not constrained by opportunity. Hotel industry in Europe is probably 165 billion or so. So there's a massive opportunity out there. But to change the culture so you are now spending money the more readily than you did in the early actually took quite a lot of time to say, you know, let's stop faffing about with getting the cheapest brand of photocopier paper. We've got more important things to worry
0: about. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the board and then we'll move on to the exit. So the board, I think you mentioned earlier that you didn't actually take on a non execs for a few months after you started. No. The original board, I think we had a guy called John McCallion, and we had Michael Ullman
1: on there. Oh, from, from day one? From from very early day on, yes. yes. So. And then in October, and, and this is blindingly obvious in retrospect, you know, the business had, was generating three pounds gross margin a day. We were clearly not succeeding. And what would be blindingly obvious to anybody else was that we needed some people with hotel experience. And the only experience we had of hotels, really, was talking to lots of them and staying in them. So we went out and we mercilessly trapped down a guy called George Franks. You won't know him, but he was founder of a company called Utel, which at the time was the largest hotel booking company in the world. And he lived in Woodbridge. And this poor guy, we rang him up and said, you know, this is Adrian's idea, I'd like to stress, but you know, we said, we're in your area tomorrow. <laughs> could, we, could we meet you for a I've coffee? <laughs> and then he said, I'm busy tomorrow. so we're also in your area the next day. <laughs> and we literally said, we're in your area every day for next month. Can we please meet you? And, and luckily he laughed and then met us for a drink and agreed to join the board. And the seismic difference in confidence that suddenly you have someone who has run the largest hotel booking company in the world advising you in your incipient, rather dwarf-like Hotel booking company. You, you suddenly have confidence to make the decisions because if he doesn't know it, yeah, the chances are it's not worth knowing. So he was brilliant. And we also got a guy called Paul Dukes join the board who has been a hotelier all his life and absolutely knows the economics, the drivers, etc. of the hotel industry. And the funds, the VCT, that you the Close Brothers, they didn't put anybody on the board. They did, but Bamboo were happy to be represented by George Franks, and Close Brothers were represented by Paul Dukes. So, to their credit, they probably recognised how badly we were doing to some extent, but they recognised that we needed that expertise and helped
0: us get it. Yes. Okay. And Mike Ullman, who I have been on the board with, in yeah. fact, and we've interviewed the entrepreneur that was the founder of that company. He is a professor... Oh, he was an entrepreneur for many years, wasn't he? He set up a number of business, only professor of entrepreneurship at INSEAD. Yeah, which is where I met him. Yes. Can you just talk about what value he added during the journey? Yeah, it's enormous,
1: actually. So... As Michael had, had been involved with lots and lots of startups previously. So he recognized the challenges. He expected it to be chaotic. He had no naivety at all about what was about to happen to me. I had lots, but he didn't have any. So the sounding board, the, almost the personal mentorship was very, very valuable. He also knew about board dynamics and he's got a brilliant business head on him as well. He can be Um, Slightly volatile at (laughs) times, but yeah, there's always sense behind what he's discussing. So uh, he added a lot of value. And why did he join you? He originally, he asked me to make him some introductions to other people in the industry. And I told him I was raising this money here, and and I think we were raising money at 2.5 million pre, and he said, don't be so ridiculous, that's an absurd valuation. And then I said, I'm sorry, I'd love to have you as a shareholder, but no, I'm not going to drop the price. And he went away for two, three months and then came back at the end and said, oh, all right then, <laughs> and, and invested anyway. And I'm really grateful he did. And Michael, in particular, we had times, as I mentioned, where we were absolutely desperate for cash, and him and John McCallion, they put in loans to the company to tide us over the period when we, we, we had to pay staff or whatever. And completely irrationally, they, they did it as a personal vote of confidence in me, but they got no return out of doing it at all,
0: and I'm incredibly grateful. They got their that. money back. They got their money yeah. back, but they didn't know at the time that they were going to. Yeah, yeah. So, Andy, you benefited from a number of great board members. Was there anyone else that contributed to Active Hotel's success through their mentoring and advice? Yes, definitely. One of the
1: most influential figures, at least on my early development as an entrepreneur, was Roger Graham. And he was an absolutely fantastic chairman for me. He had the great benefit of he'd run his own business, so he knew exactly what I was going through. And as an entrepreneur, you particularly value, I'm sure it's obvious, but you absolutely value the ability to be completely straight completely honest with another advisor and that's quite hard to find because you need a level of trust there that it means that they're not going to panic when you tell them the problems the issues with the business and roger was absolutely that person for me i could tell him pretty much anything that was going on in the business and he wouldn't panic he'd give me his advice and because he'd run his own very successful software business that
0: advice was hugely instrumental in
1: shaping our vision and our strategy
0: so move on to exit. So were you approached? Did you decide to sell? I mean, what was the discussion around the board? Who did you sell to, et cetera?
1: It was a strange dynamic at the time. There was one other company in Europe, a company called Bookings BV at the time, who we regularly competed for deals with. And for deals, I mean distributors, so selling through front-end websites like the Michelin, for example, in France. And we had some very informal discussions about trying to merge those two companies. And I took that to my shareholders who were concerned. And rightly so. We were growing several hundred percent per annum here. And everybody knows that merging companies is very distracting, takes you off the eye of the ball. And they were probably slightly smaller than us at that time. And so they're saying, if it's going to take six months to merge, you'll have sacrificed 100% growth here. So it needs to be a really, really, really good merger. And it died out. Over that period, we were being approached by a lot of people. So they're probably confidential, but most of the titans, if you like, in the travel industry. Mm -hmm. And as is the want of acquirers, there's a threat associated with it when you're yes. being... The, we'll squash you otherwise. Yes, you yeah. either sell to us or we will beat you up. Yeah. And whereas there are certain aspects of the travel industry where you can afford not to win, I mean, hotels you can't. Hotels are really where you make money. So having a competitor who's saying, I'm going to squash you, who's got not just tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions to deploy at it, made me very nervous as a founder. So I probably persuaded the board to exit, actually. I was there thinking whether we have a better underlying model than you know for example Expedia or one of those people is probably irrelevant if they can afford to spend 100 million killing right. me yeah yeah and so i thought we needed better backing there. so did adrian agree with you on this adrian had left by that point adrian left in 2003 or so okay and adrian did agree but probably because adrian had other ventures he was looking at doing and probably needed some cash yeah well there's no probably about it, it did need some cash yes yes there. so he, he wanted to so you free. lost your co-founder yes adrian left in 2003 and you know that's probably a reflection on my lack of ability to integrate here, but he was brilliant and still added massive value after 2003 as well. So very, very creative. He had founded one business before that and absolutely knew the ropes. Yeah, right. and was a great yeah, asset,
0: certainly in the in the early days of the it Just wouldn't have happened without him. So, did you approach the acquirer your eventual acquirer, or did you approach or you use a corporate financier to help you with
1: this? I didn't realize at the time. It's quite a typical story. Actually, we got approached by a lot of people, and then you go and appoint an investment. Bank, yeah, who then salutes the people who've already approached you <laughs> and charge you for, <laughs> for it again i'm being slightly flippant they absolutely helped us with how to position the business and the presentation looks brilliant but and probably also, the price and the, the price in the it industry. certainly sustained the yeah. price during that process we were slightly hampered you alluded to it earlier actually that we were profitable and we were slightly hampered by the price over earnings ratio we could probably yes. have got a higher price if we were loss making rather ridiculously exactly we'll do a blog about that at some point. So we appointed an investment bank. They ran a beauty parade. And we didn't quite take the highest offer, actually. But we took the offer where we thought the chemistry was absolutely right. And the Priceline, who was the people that purchased, were a brilliant acquirer. They absolutely understood the dynamics of how to work with startups. They understood how to structure the deal. Lots and lots of wisdom from Bob lord Jeff Boyd, and Glenn Fogel, who's now chief executive of Priceline. Okay. And how did you work out a price? Was it a bidding process? Or? It, was, it was a bidding Process yeah. run along the normal lines there. The valuation metrics, I still struggle with valuation metrics. It seems to be such a matter of fashion and the, you know, the norm at the time. There's also a dynamic going on the other side that the VCs in particular are saying, actually, you you should be able to get more than that, or that sounds a reasonable price. Mm -hmm. They've got more expertise in that circumstance than you have. So there was no great science to how we came up with the price. We ran the
0: process and we took a price that was at the higher end of what we were offering, Mm -hmm. as you Mm -hmm. might expect. (laughs) And did you either have an earn out or or were committed to stay for a while? We were forced to
1: reinvest 10% there. And at the time, lots of my investors had said, if you're going to exit, exit, get cash. And so I reluctantly reinvested 10%, and it's the best investment I've ever made. It, <laughs> it, it went up by a factor of 12, I think, in the first year. So, so you made more out of the second exit yeah, than the first. Yeah. Amazing. So that's absolutely my best ever reluctant angel investment target. <laughs> <of. laughs> Excellent. Okay, so this was in late 2004, wasn't it? Yes, I think. that's right. Probably worth mentioning is I ran Priceline's, I was chief executive of Priceline's international business, which is everything outside the U.S. for the next year and a half, two years, whatever it was. And what generated Booking.com at that point was we bought the company we talked to previously. I mentioned Bookings BV. Put those two companies together, and again, that was forced by the um, chief executive, Priceline, who said, "You, know, if you think this company is so great, put your money where your mouth is." Mm-hmm. And because I'd reinvested you know, several million into the entity, so if you think it's great, put your cash behind it. Yeah. So we merged the two businesses, and the business has flown since then. And I can't take any credit for that. You know, that's grown. I think they. It's over 50 billion now.
0: Thank you for listening to part one of Andy Phillips' Invested Investor podcast. We have learned so much about how he formed a hugely successful company, including what makes a business profitable. In the next podcast, Andy will be talking about another company he founded, followed by his transition into angel investing. This will be available on our website shortly, so be sure you are subscribed for our regular content. Thank you.